0: Hello and welcome to IHBC at COP26. Conserving buildings and places conserves our planet. Today we're joined by Dr. Alan Forster. Alan is Associate Professor within the Royal Academy of Engineering Center of Excellence at Sustainable Urban Design, Harriet Watt University. His research focuses on themes that investigate traditional and low carbon building materials, building resilience to climate change, maintenance and fabric repair for historic buildings, heritage building information modeling, and construction and conservation education. He has published over 80 works and has attained research grants from an array of RCUK funding councils. He is a building surveyor by profession and has a deep interest in core technical aspects of practice and is a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Builders, a member of the Institute of Historic Building Conservation, and is an associate member of the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors. Welcome, Alan. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Hi there. Thank you very much for having me. Very kind for the invite, thank you. And what an introduction!
0: Well, you know, I'll ask you to expand on it a bit. Uh, could you tell us about yourself, how you got started, and why you're passionate about sustainability and conservation?
1: It's a, it's a strange one. It's almost like a, a cathartic process of you know being regressed to how did you start? It was, I would say that my sort of path to getting into building conservation and really where I am today was it's sort of non-linear. Really, I uh, left school uh, really didn't engage well with school, to be truthful. And I left school and I uh, was lucky enough to land an apprenticeship. I served six years in my apprenticeship as a, a plumbing and mechanical heating engineer. Um, so I have a an implicit, and you know, my formative years were, were on, on the craft side. So I've got a, an implicit appreciation of the importance of, of, of craft and good craft skills as well. Uh, so I did my apprenticeship and then I went back to college and went and did my building civilian degree and I think that's very much the, the my building civilian and formative foundations again really form a lens through which I see much of my practice. So for all I've got a PhD in material science and it's a funny thing that I was invited to do a PhD. It sounds all very fancy but I remember the prof saying to us look we've got some funding for a PhD and uh, I said well Yeah, that sounds great. And i would be really interested in doing it. And he said, look, I said, I'm interested in materials and technology and building conservation. He said, okay, let's try and marry those up. And the uh, there was I could have done any materials. I could have that was that's the thing. You could have done anything, picked any subject. But I decided to work on limes and historic mortars. And uh, it's funny, just that quick decision where you go, well, that seems quite interesting. Then it sets a trajectory for the rest of your career going forward so anyway did my phd um but mean you know in between doing my phd i also did the spab scholarship and that cannot be overstated in the importance to my view on building conservation philosophical you know and technical aspects of of conservation as well so after working for a few years, worked at the Lyme Center, worked for building contractors, and then I ended up taking my first academic post in and I've been there really ever since, to be truthful.
0: You know, looking at that materials science research a little bit, I think often there's an assumption that conservation is just sort of all about using existing materials and methods. And can you tell us a little bit more about how ongoing research in materials technology impacts upon conservation philosophy and practice?
1: well it's a it's a it's a big question i mean for me that materials whether traditional materials so here okay, are the are to me the, the the bedrock of building conservation every sort of fabric intervention choice that we have to make is has got to be predicated on sort of materials you know like like material replacement when, when i think about sort of my research or, or my formative thoughts really came about we're doing the SPAB scholarship you know so we were working on we would go and visit repair projects on oh, a myriad of different forms, like, you know, structures, whether it be building materials or different forms of, stru- it struck me that a lot of the traditional materials were also what we would consider sort of very good in terms of their environmental credentials as well. So when I think about uh, not all, but but a lot of them, so it could be lime mortars, for example, you know, so you'd be going to see people working with uh, lime, whether it be in a mortars or concrete or whichever ever capacity. And, Although back in the 90s, there wasn't so much of a prevalence on or or a focus on the environmental attributes of them. It just so happened that, you know, these these traditional mortars were in the grand scheme of things much better in terms of their environment credentials or moving away from materials like lime, you know, that are are still have high energy and high carbon input, you know, in terms of the firing and the, the, you know, the, 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 the dug materials. You know, thinking about stuff like unfired earth materials, whether it be like cob or or rammed earth or materials like that or or thatch. And I think it did, it always struck me that there was people that we were going to see on these sites uh, or working on these projects, these historic repair projects that were almost seen as fringe sort of outsider builders as it were, but actually they are very much more coming into the to the to the fore now. You know and, and especially see if I think about um rammed earth cob. You know very uh low energy material inputs There are um yeah the the good so it always struck me that there was this interplay between historic buildings and the environmental sector which might not have necessarily been as as sort of intertwined as we, we view them now and i was fortunate to to really be quite inspired by people i was saying you know it's going down to Cornwall a little bit of earth building or just working with batches or you know doing repair of, of masonry structures and work and then getting a better understanding of lime mortars as well or, or lime technologies. It's, it's integral really to uh, like say, the interplay of, of good, sensitive building conservation, but also managing to satisfy some of uh, the environmental aspects as well. And if we think about uh, materials and the importance of materials in a, in a broader setting, when I look at modern or current environmental assessment sort of policies and strategies, Fabric first is, is a, a, a term that's banded about, you know, that the the inherent embodied carbon or, or low energy that's can be produced or, or, or be reflected in a lot of our traditional materials and techniques. And uh, it is, It's it seems so obvious, really, when you look at, you know, you look at materials that were sourced locally, that are, you know, locally pro- procured, yeah. but they're not, at great distances the amount of energy that's gone into to the production of these materials in many cases can be lower than highly refined modern materials that we utilize it just makes perfect sense and I, I was always minded of you know as an undergraduate reading alec clifton taylor's patterns of english architecture or whatever it was and but it makes perfect sense you know that you've got regional materials you know that that you utilize to create architectural forms that we all know and love, and, and that creates the regionality of, of, of the built environment. It creates architectural forms that are sympathetic in the natural environment or within the environment. But like I say, even by virtue of not carton, the materials very far, you're, you're reducing the sort of carbon inputs as well.
0: And then talking about maintenance and repair for a minute, because I know you've written about this topic and specifically in one of your papers, I've seen you write about how historic buildings or maintenance to historic buildings can be assessed on paradigms of cost or adherence to conservation philosophy or environmental sustainability. So how do you go about synthesizing these these sort well, of strands and trying I mean, to, you know, how do you optimize?
1: I mean, I think for me, I mean, the, the the work that I've done on maintenance, you know, was really predicated on... You know it's at the bedrock it's the heart of building conservation when you go back to william morris or you know a pre pre morris really you know and you know, steve off to care with daily care and all of these but the the uptake of maintenance you know you can see by the waves of initiatives that come through it's it's the cinderella you know area of building it's difficult to get people to engage with with you know even very rudimentary or basic fundamentally important uh, aspects of maintenance so i was trying to look at look at maintenance and how we might stimulate the uptake of maintenance through looking at for maintenance through a different lens so saying well okay you, you know it's to, to me it makes perfect sense that if you undertake maintenance you get retention of historic fabric but you also have cost savings because if you're doing you know minimal intervention approaches even basics like cleaning your gutters it's in, in the longer term, it saves you a lot of money rather than having built up latent and patent defects, which cost you a great deal more all the time. Now, so the, the, we've, we have myriad sort of uh, publications, and lectures and seminars and organisations that are specifically developed to try and move forward and, and, and get people to, to do these types of things. And it it does, I mean, don't get me wrong, these, these initiatives do work, but they're not as successful as I think any of us would really like given the importance of maintenance as an activity. So we tried to frame maintenance in terms of with an additional element, looking at sort of embodied carbon. I think that to me, the the, the premise is that, you know, when I look at any historic building, I mean, I'm always impressed by the way that they are inherent survivors. You know, we look at a building that could be 200 years old, I don't know, whatever, 300 years old, and by virtue of them being there, they're a real success story, irrespective of whether people would look at them and go, or oh, they might be energy inefficient at this point in time, measured against modern energy standards. But they have they have had sustained utility for hundreds and hundreds of years. They've had that function, they've morphed, they've adapted, and they're still being used. And the vast majority of the buildings themselves have been a great store, a lot of that embodied carbon Okay, So I was always interested in, well, how can make good, good conservation really is about the retention of the majority of that embodied carbon that's locked up in the fabric and keeping it there for as long as you ultimately can. It's better for the architectural sort of form and there's more of the original building, but we've got more of the carbon locked up and we've got that sustained utility over time. But there were always going to be difficult and I know that it's a contentious way to frame it that was that were considered hard to treat buildings. I don't know what's a it's a um I don't know, it's a, a, a tag or an attachment to buildings which is unwelcomed. But you might be confronted with a a, a listed building. For, I'm in Edinburgh. So you might have the new town in Edinburgh and you've got a really wonderful structure where you can't really do much to the it could be in the new town, you've got um wonderful sandstone, you know, facades. You've got beautifully constructed, highly decorative internal plaster schemes. You know, there's not much that we can really do in terms of thermal upgrading for these structures. You know, you can insulate where you can insulate or, you know, without damaging the fabric. But what I was interested in really was going, well, how can we achieve energy reduction or carbon saving in these structures, where we haven't got much room to maneuver in terms of intervention. And so, I, we, you know, myself and the team came up with the concept of, of green maintenance, where really it was looking at small maintenance interventions. And if you looked at every single maintenance intervention that you do through a suitability of, of material selection. So, so we're already thinking, well, we're wanting materials that are sympathetic, and sensitive and appropriate to the repairs that that are required on a ideally on a like-for-like basis so okay uh, can't necessarily always satisfy that but trying to, to get the best you can in terms of materials like like materials replacement so you know thinking about you know we've got decisions to be made about appropriateness of materials but we can also look at the appropriateness of the material selection through a, a, a carbon lens so it could be well, where we, you know, it's almost like green supply chain. So if we look at small, it could be a replacement piece of small. So you say, well, we've got choices to make in terms of we might have a degraded, you know, a degraded piece of ashlar masonry. So what can we do? We can either we can make an assessment about the, the, the condition of the ashlar masonry. And we've got a, we've got a series of choices. Do we go for a lime based plastic repair? which you can use to do sort of surface repair do we pin and consolidate the stone, or do we replace the natural stone? so we've got a lot of choices you know when we're confronted with you know even you know quite common uh, commonly occurring sort of features or repairs that might be required to these buildings anywhere so by looking at these repairs and trying to evaluate the amount of energy as well as cost and as well as the suitability in terms of building conservation philosophy. If we started to also build in this sort of carbon dimension, you know, minor or relatively insignificant repairs cumulatively over the years, as these interventions go on, could make a quite considerable sort of contribution to carbon reduction strategies. So it was just place here trying to get people to think of, as you've got an opportunity to influence the appropriateness of material selection, predicated on building conservation philosophy and how you how you view in the technical repairs. I think it's another thing as well. I mean, I, I, when I when I teach undergrads or when I teach anyone really, you know, I mean, building conservation to me, it's not this esoteric. I think people think it is this esoteric philosophical thing, and it is philosophy, you know. But and there's not necessarily rights or wrongs. But what's always fascinated me is that it's the way that philosophy underpins every technical intervention that we do every decision that we make on a micro level you know to, to repair a bit of stone to a macro scale where we're going we're going to put a really quite large extension onto this historic building philosophy infuses and, and it permeates all of those ultimate decisions if i think about green maintenance i think green maintenance would be appropriate materials that are you know that have been determined so it, let's say like for like material replacement on the best available materials you can get to repair with the lowest embodied carbon you can, but that give you the greatest level of durability as well. I suppose conversely, sort of you could see brown maintenance might be where you have high embodied carbon, hideously insensitive material like cement mortar on i don't know a lime hard. Building. It's not appropriate, it's high energy, but it also increases the rate of degradation in the fabric because of moisture build or whatever. So, anyway, it, it's, it doesn't seem to be, you know, it's not splitting the atom, but it's trying to get people to, to think of maintenance and the connectivity with carbon. And that even if you have a structure that you find it difficult to, to implement, let's say, uh, energy reduction policies through sort of the thermal efficiency, that are there are things that we can do that cumulatively can be really quite significant, I would argue, in the longer term.
0: You've written and researched on heritage building information modelling as well. How can this and other emerging digital technologies help improve the practice of conservation? And what part do they play in leading us to lower carbon practices?
1: Michael, you know, there's always going to be the, the core educational core of any building conservation professional. And they'll be pretty much, I think, tame on it. But when i think about the transformative changes that are that are going on in terms of our practice it's the environmental dimension which that's what we're here i'm gonna i'm gonna chat about but there's also the, the sort of the digital aspect as well and the, they're not necessarily separate entities you know we, we can utilize progressive innovative digital technologies to help us conserve our buildings better but also to to reallocate and redirect limited finance that we have to better conserve these structures and to so also reduce uh, degradation structures. So, an example, um, when I think about work that we've been doing, you know, laser scanning, photogrammetry, digital reality capture is, is commonplace in the historic built environment now. It used to be, you know, you know, for mainly for recording and documentation processes. And that's really important, but we were interested in Extracting value from digital data uh, at the university, I work with a, a, a group at Edinburgh University called Cyberbuild, and uh, we've been doing some really it's like really fancy sort of uh, algorithm development in both in terms of mach, machine learning and for, for defects and in terms of extracting value from from this digital data anyway so you laser scan the building and, and everybody's laser scanning buildings these years, and that's fine, and it's really important but we were interested in how you transcend documentation. So, looking at practically what we did, we, we looked at uh, automatic segmentation of, of rubble masonry and Ashland masonry. We would sort of scan and re-scan buildings and we'd be looking and writing algorithms that would detect change over time. If you're targeting interventions, so, you know, you, you go out and um, you go out in a severe building, there's, there's inherent subjectivity in, in the survey process. I would go out and survey a building okay, and I might say, oh, there's problems in a specific area, and uh, another surveyor or another evaluator could go out and look at the same building, and you'd be surprised at the level of difference in, in what was expected or what was what was a list of wants or list of requirements that was given maybe to a client so the starting point was really extraction of value and creating a more objective starting point so we done work on uh, like I say we laser scanned buildings and then working with the historic environment scotland we wrote algorithms that like I say that would segment the individual masonry units uh, we then wrote um, what called call plugins so when you interact with the, the with the point clouds the image the the, the point cloud that you get uh, we wrote algorithms that enable you to interact in there's a piece of software called Cloud Compare where you could import your masonry rubble structure and by pushing the plug-in button, it would automatically segment the individual stones. Now, that has, it doesn't sound that glamorous, but it gives you the ability then to individually label rubble stones or ashlar stones, and that's really the starting point for a lot of conservation operations that come after that. By virtue of having the segmented individual stones, if we, we could then say, well, there's 1,300 stones in that sort, but then when you know the stones and the, 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 the actual positioning of the stones, you can also work out the linear meterage of mortars as well, because we then had the mortar information about the mortar. You could ask the algorithm, in essence, to identify all those areas of mortars that were cutting back and recessing. So, you know, I could go out and survey Linlithgow Palace. It would take me an awful long time to go out and individually survey every square meter of the actual building. But with the algorithms that we were using and that we developed, it enabled the computer, for want of a better term, to, to highlight areas that might be problematic for the severe then to go and have a look at. And in that, you know, it's, it's, switching, it's switching it round really from the, the survey and the scaffolding of works being the expensive or one of the most important areas of the conservation works. If we can redirect the money that was spent on survey operations to the repair and maintenance operations, it's ultimately got to be better for the conservation of the structure as well. I think uh, as well, I think an important thing is, and, and, and increasingly, so there's almost a battle going on with terminology or in my mind there's the zhp or heritage building information modeling but that's now morphing it's sort of name into digital twin and so when we think of digital twin digital twin's been around for all oh, for donkeys years in terms of in terms of automobile industry and, and and a lot of the and a lot of production sector So a digital twin if we think about modern architectural design you would draw the building obviously draw design the building in software packages like Revit, let's say, you would draw a model of the building and then the building would, they would use the model to construct the building. And you could have, uh, then you could have what we call a semantically rich model. So basically you then have this picture of the building, a digital picture, and you can add layers of additional information on top. It's almost like the process is design the building in a digital realm, construct the building, and there's a linkage between the actual building that you've got and the model. When you're looking at historic buildings it's almost a, a reverse of the process you use the laser you laser scan the building then you've got to segment or separate the individual bits of the building to, to create a model and then you can add additional information on but i definitely say that the quest for this digital twin in historic buildings is going to be fundamentally important in terms of assessing uh, like the way the sensor technologies are going so you you, you can embed we'll have more and more data that's telling us about the real-time performance of historic buildings okay and this can be linked back to a model so you basically saying, look you know the model and we've we've scanned imagine if we laser scan a building and then a year later we go and re-scan the building and we can detect that change has occurred between the first digital survey and the second digital survey that has value in terms of what's called, oh, there's there's a change in the digital information and it'll it either direct us towards certain works. But the, the amount of sensors that you can embed in structures, whether it's you know, for, for movement or whether it's for energy or whether it's for moisture, you know, the, the development at a pace and the, the cost of these technologies is also decreasing. You can get really good digital reality capture from a handheld phone now, you know. So uh, the, the 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 cost is not in the the acquisition of the of that data. It's really in what well, what you're going to use that data ultimately for. So yeah, I definitely see that technologies are going to help us better understand the performance and the repair and maintenance of our historic buildings <clears> going forward. <throat> and I, I definitely think that that will lead to productivity and efficiency savings. I don't think surveyors or evaluators or people who are working on historic buildings should be necessarily scared of these technologies it's just about it's about resource allocation and utilizing resource allocation to different different areas getting it to where it's needed most it's ultimately about the repair of the building or the upkeep of the building so the, the, the value added would be most certainly in you know getting made doing higher order tasks rather than doing monotonous surveys of well, i think that digital twin will definitely be moving forward a piece. I think that moving beyond reality capture for recording as well is is definitely gonna, and it is gaining traction. But we've also written um, machine learning algorithms that are in the early stages, again, of identifying uh, specific defects in in masonry, let's say. So you can have ashley masonry and you can train the algorithms to detect, let's say your laser scan. A facade of a of a building and you might have ashlet so you might have you know myriad different defects that confront you but invariably it will be loss so you'll have erosion of, of materials you might have gain on materials so it could be corrosion of iron fixings or it could be crusts and limestone or you know so products that actually add to the stone so you've got the image so you've got stuff that's Lost from the image or stuff that's adequate, or you can have discoloration in materials, as well, like salt staining or moisture related issues as well. So, we did laser scanning of it. Um, it was actually Sterling Chabel working with Historic Environment Scotland again and the Cyberbuild team over at Edinburgh University. We wrote algorithms to detect sort of severe directed defects. We then set the algorithm going, and it was really pretty good surprisingly good you know for, for being a first wave but we need we need more training data the more data that we have to feed into the algorithm ultimately the better it would be become a detecting sort of defects like with, with greater levels of confidence but especially within the context of, of climate change you know we've got increased rainfall so if in scotland there's a a mass masonry tradition generally speaking there's other forms but let's see. A, a great deal of what we what conferences pre 1999 is is mass masonry, so we're getting increasing intensity of rainfall, which is saturating off the fabric, saturated for longer. Since the sensor technology and real time data attached back to a semantically rich model we get a better understanding of the actual need to intervene, or you know triggering alarm bells of going, I'm really worried about the the you know the degradation in this. You know also correlating that moisture in in materials and energy and heat loss, the conductivity of materials change with an increase in moisture content as well. So there's an interrelationship between energy efficiency and wet buildings, really, as well as, you know, water is the engine of decay, that type of thing, you know, as well as going oh, that's, it's getting wetter for longer. Anyway, yeah, so I definitely see that, you know, these digital technologies and the, the information management really helping to repair in a more efficient way as we move forward.
0: Does your research also involve looking at what can be done for buildings as well as places and communities to increase their resiliency? You you started to mention some of the sensor technology, but are you looking at this more broadly as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I look at, you know, sort of building resilience to climate change through mainly through a fabric perspective, but there's also the realization or or an understanding of sort of community resilience as well, and this sort of interplay between effects of fabric and then the effects ultimately on the people as well. And we've been doing some, some educational research projects on looking at how we can better, really about sort of education provision for, you know, community resilience affected by, you know, by sort of severe weather events. And it can be on a, on a national scale, with the Cumbria floods, you know, affected a lot of traditional structures that might not be listed, but they're really important in terms of the pattern of the, the townscape. You know these buildings are flooded people are decanted and and we have we, you know here we haven't got that deep of pockets in the UK, here but we have a great deal of resilience inherent in the system but when i've been working with partners in uh, nigeria and they have issues that are on a almost a different order of magnitude as well the premise of the work was to try to to get students to better understand the connectivity between these sort of environmental catastrophic issues, or, you know, are really important factors that affect communities, whether it be on fabric. And when if I was, edu- if, you know, when I'm teaching, the majority of stuff I'm trying to teach students to, you know, it's like mitigation to flood issues, or what do we do if the buildings are flooded? And how would we technically intervene with that? But also to get them to think about the implications on wider and broader sort of community resilience as well. And that there's this interplay between, between the the two that are fundamentally important and and how you actually contextualize that in education you know how do you develop scenarios that are sufficiently complex to simulate the world that the professional world that they're going to inhabit you know the bringing together of multidisciplinary transdisciplinary teams to look at issues that are really complicated you know and even there's a, there's educational value in them understanding the complexity of those issues, even if they haven't got all the solutions. Just to, to understand these things, a lot of uh, a lot of my formative work looking at building resilience to climate change. So I was interested in specifically in moisture related problems. So looking at structures, especially in Scotland, you know, but you know it could be you know all, all around uh, the UK and 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 across Europe, you know. Buildings that were built and designed, you know, for a certain climatic, let's say, norm, and and now they haven't to perform under increasing performance strain that they were never necessarily designed to cope with. And how do we how do we help how do we help these structures, you know, be more resilient ultimately? Uh so in previous projects I've looked at sort of infrastructural masonry, so it could be like historic masonry bridges and tenement construction, where you've got mass masonry walls, and looking at the implications of increased wetting and saturation of masonry and mortars, and what happens to the physical properties of these materials over, you know, longitudinally. So how are these materials faring in terms of their performance and degradation rates over 40, 50, 60 years? And we did accelerate testing and a host of things. I think in essence, I think, we you know, we're all going to have to get out thinking and come on.
0: You touched on it a little bit when you were talking about sort of setting scenarios as you're teaching undergrads. But I wanted to ask, what role do you see as higher education sort of research establishments in general playing in helping our society become more sustainable when it comes to the built environment? The,
1: the importance of, of sustainability and environmental issues. It's, it's overwhelming, really. It pervades every aspect of almost everything that, that we do. And I think that um, you can either embed, so you can have courses or modules that are specifically orientated towards looking at sustainability in the round. And that, they, they're fine and I'm sure they have their place. But I think really what's more, most important for me and what I would like to say would be highly contextualised sustainability education. So you try to embed. The issues that you are framing in sustainability in real world scenarios. It, it's better for engagement of, of a student or of a, as a building professional or what, whatever you're doing. If you can see that context that's created that has meaning, you engage with the educational process much more. I think there's also the importance of accrediting bodies, whether it be IHBC for sort of conservation related, whether it's CIOB, RICS. RIBE, they have a, a lot of clout to see actually we want to see an enhanced and bolstered meaningful offering in terms of sustainability issues.
0: Well thank you Alan for coming in today and talking, very interesting. I'd like to wrap up by asking you in your estimation what does the future look like or what should it look like in terms of sustainability and conservation of the built environment?
1: I've always seen and I don't know whether it's just through my Practice, practice experience, or my sort of worldview. I've never seen building conservation and sort of wider natural conservation as being they're almost inter- intertwined. I think those who, and this is a totally unsubstantiated, generalised sort of view, maybe, but those who work in building conservation almost come from the same root or origin as those working in natural environment. You know, it's it's almost like you know, if you put the, the, the if work in disparate sectors and you brought them together in a room, there would be quite happy bedfellows, I would have thought. And I think, you know, going back to thinking of and I'm not in, in any way expert on, you know, those who've who've been pioneers of, um, you know, natural environment conservation. But yeah, imagine Morrison Ruskin and these people would be, you know, cheek by jowl with these people in, in their, their philosophical constructs. So see, I see, I mean, in terms of conservation, I think we we come from the same origin. You know, I, I firmly believe that, you know, let's hear that, the, the, you know, the view of society and the view of wanting things to be better and to be conserved better, whether it's fabric and buildings or whether we want the natural environment. I'm like, we 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 naturally inhabit that space and I'm I'm proud that I care about people and the built environment and wider environment and so uh whilst i don't necessarily consciously think about you know uh in that sort of like natural environment conservation it's like it's always there it's always like i'm on, I'm on your side you know I'm, I'm i'm supportive of that you know I, and i think in terms of how do i feel I, you know it's one of these questions it's a hideously difficult question i mean and i've, I've been watching the news and you know people have been asked similar questions about well, are you optimistic about it? I'm like, it becomes overwhelming. It becomes overwhelming when you think about all the hideousness, all the overwhelming nightmare that is climate change, but acting individually to do little bits, cumulatively. Surely we can solve the bigger bits, you know, but it's that willingness to do our wee bit. We can always strive to, to do better, but we come from a strong origin of care and wanting to do the right thing.